Becoming an Anti-Racist, the podcast. Hi everyone, I'm your host Dr. Muna Abdi and in this episode I'm joined by Carl Poupey, a qualified classroom teacher with over 10 years experience teaching across primary, secondary and further education. Carl specialises in behaviour management and has worked as a not in education employment or training, otherwise known as NEETS coordinator, teaching students with severe social, emotional and mental health difficulties. He wrote a book called The Action Hero Teacher and is the founder of actionheroteacher.com, which was voted by Vuelo as one of the top 10 educational blogs in the UK. Those of you that know Carl on Twitter need no further introduction. And the conversation that we're having today is really building on the tweets that we've both made that relate to the way in which the curriculum is engaged with in relation to racialized language. conversation that we're having today is really building upon a conversation that we started on Twitter so I initially posted something about an incident that happened with my niece in her classroom um, where the teacher said the n-word when reading out the of mice and men chapter two around crooks um, which we know this has happened often and I think there were a number of responses to that tweet and one of them that really was profound was the response that you made where you shared another incident um, with, about a young man who again had a very similar experience and, and the consequences of that were again mirroring the consequences that my niece experienced from calling out the, the response for the teacher. So I wanted us to just have another conversation about what sure. those incidences actually demonstrate to us about the decisions that we make as educators, yeah. but also later on maybe have a conversation about how the young people in those uh, incidences have been positioned. So just to start us off, the literature of mice and men to kill a mockingbird the list goes on yes what's your view on whether or not educators should be able to say the n-word if they are within these texts that are being used in the classroom sure well first of all i just want to say thank you for being so brave and putting it out there because it's so funny when you mentioned that tweet going back to what you were saying about what happened to your niece it made me literally flash back to the incident that I described, which I'm going to describe now. But thank you for being so brave because it was interesting. I don't know if you followed after the mm-hmm. tweets. There were people that were going on to subtweets and other educators took it on. Like I know yeah. tweets from Bilal, I don't know his real name. He kind of took it on and people were talking. So it was a real labyrinth of responses and different people are saying different things but let me describe the incident and my thoughts on it so I'm not going to lie to you so I teach citizenship English I'm a jack of all trades because I come from alternative provision so I can kind of teach it all and I had to um I was in the English department in a school about five years ago and Mm. of my some men was there in key stage three and basically what happened was there was a young man that I've gotten very well with called Mohammed um very good kid year 11 um just a typical normal kid really uh, a, Somali, a Somali boy and what happened was his brother was in a class in a year nine class when they were doing of mice and men mm. now although the school was diverse in this particular class he was one of the only black children that were in the class and what ended up happening was the teacher came to that particular part as you said when we introduced crooks as a character and he you know he's getting threatened and you know and the thing is when we look at it as teachers sometimes we look at it with 
uh, I can't put put it into words, but we look at it almost like it's just the text. But if you mm. really look deeply into it, these main characters were saying, you know, if you speak, we're going to lynch you. We're going to do this to you. We're going to do that to you. Calling him, you know, the N word. And mm. it, was, it was a very unpleasant experience. So what happened in the class was the teacher, uh, a white teacher, was saying the N word. And what happened, what I was told, the young man, obviously, and he had a friend near him, was quite shocked. Um, but they didn't say anything. They just thought, okay. But what he saw was the non-black children basically starting to snigger and laugh. And they basically started saying things like, oh, we're going to call him Crooks now. Look at Crooks, blah, 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 and that type of thing. So the young man in question, the year nine boy, he ran out of the classroom and he went to find his older brother. Now, his older, older brother was quite livid. So he went to approach the teacher after the lesson and say, can I talk to you, miss? Let's discuss this. My brother's really, really upset. So I was in the English corridor, not corridor, it's the, Eng it's the English corridor, but I was in like the staff room where all the mm. English department sits, basically. So I found this all out after. So the teacher in question said to the young man, he said, look, we've taught this for many, many years. It's never been a problem. Very, very dismissive, very, very, you know, relaxed, calm down, dear type of thing. The young man said, no, my brother's upset. You shouldn't say the M word. Mm. And she took umbrage to this because she felt like, so this is when I spoke to the teacher, the teacher said, I felt he was being aggressive and threatening to me. So she called for something called patrol where, you know, if a kid's being yeah. naughty, somebody comes along. So two senior members of staff came along. They obviously had a bit of a Barney. They had a bit of an argument. All I heard was screaming and shouting. And I'll never forget this. He started to kick the doors and he was mm. slamming the doors and whatnot. And that's why I introduced Mohammed. He's an, why I said what I said in the beginning, because mm. he's not that type of kid. He doesn't kick off like that. All right. So... The senior leader was like, look, if you don't calm down, you're basically you're going to get yourself excluded or a fixed term exclusion or whatnot. Mm. So I come and I was like, Mohammed, walk with me, talk to me. And this is where he told me the whole story. And he was like, and I'll never forget this. He said, you know, I understand people might say the N word outside of school, mm. but inside of school, this should be a safe place. I shouldn't have to hear that. And I don't want to hear that. And then he said something along the lines of, sir, why do, why do people hate us so much? And, I, and as I said to you, because it still makes me even a bit, it touches a chord with me, because I thought, wow, even in school, he doesn't feel safe. Interestingly enough, he went to the head teacher. He didn't get a fixed term exclusion. He got something called a head teacher's detention, which is like an hour and a half. But he got overturned because, again, when it was reported, he was reported as he was kicking doors. He was doing this. He was being aggressive and blah, blah, blah. And obviously the head teacher was like, look, this is mitigating circumstances, but we're still going to have to give you a sanction for that. But his parents mm -hmm. came in understandably very angry. But what was interesting about that whole thing was, and when I spoke to the teacher in question, and I just want to say for your listeners as well, because I don't want to say, oh, why do you say white teacher, or blah, blah, blah. It's not, it's not even an issue about white teacher, Asian teacher, black teacher. We've got to look at the, the term, the N-word, all right? Mm -hmm. Even with me, I always say the N-word's like a nuclear weapon. Mm -hmm. It's very hard to use safely. It's very, very hard to use safely. And in fact, like nuclear bombs, we should avoid using it at all because it's going to end up very, very bad along the lines. Yeah. What was interesting was not the fact of the M word. We know we're aware of it as teachers. It's the way it was handled. Mm. It was not the cultural fluency, the cultural competency yeah. wasn't there. And the thing is, what was interesting when the young man, when I think about what the young man was saying about why did they hate us? Now, you've got to look at it from his vantage point. He has spoken up about something that is clearly very important to him. 
okay, I'm not saying the way he did it was the best way. Maybe he'd come rushing up and obviously he was very emotion, emotional. Mm -hmm. But now the institution has punished him for speaking up against something that was important to him, which was yeah. perceived as an injustice. Whereas that whole situation could have been handled so much more differently if people understood the power of that word. Yeah. And that is the issue. And what I said on Twitter, adding on to your point, was that that book should not be on the curriculum. And I stand by that point. Why is this book on the curriculum? Now, certain educators were saying, well, people need to see the horrors and understand the horrors of Jim Crow because it was set yeah. during the Jim Crow era. We already see the horrors. Yeah. Look at George Floyd. Mm. That wasn't Jim Crow, was it? That was literally six, seven months ago. Breonna Taylor. People are forgetting, sorry, because I'm going off into a tangent here. But No, it's relevant, though. It's important. <laughs> yeah. People are forgetting because then the whole argument is, well, that's in America. Mark Duggan. Mm. Hmm? Mark Duggan. There's so many other people that have happened. Even before um, there was reported about George Floyd, there was a young man, a uh, black male, who was murdered in police custody in this country. Mm. And again, because I feel I, I should actually remember his name, but I haven't, I, I haven't remembered his name. In this mm. country, 60 people over the last 40 years, 60 people that identify as black uh, males have been murdered in police custody and not, there's not been one charge brought forward. So this whole argument of, oh, we need to see the horrors and whatnot and people need to understand. From a very young age, we understand the horrors. You know, yeah. they've actually done research in America, I think at the University of Pennsylvania, again, someone will probably fact check me. I always get my facts mixed up, mm. but it's the intent. We're saying that from a young age, from the age of about three or four, children can differentiate between um, color. And Absolutely. they know that they're different. I have a young child who's three who already knows that one looks this, that one looks like that. Mm -hmm. So they can differentiate. So post George Floyd now, I think the conversation has moved on. Yeah. Maybe before you could get away with it. But with everything that we've, be, we've seen and witnessed over the last couple of months, yeah. we really need to up our game in, yeah. in education. And I stand behind that. Another argument was, yeah, well, if you give the teacher training and we teach them about, you know, unconscious bias and doing all that type of stuff, yeah. there's a problem. There's a couple of problems. Number one, time. Will schools yeah. let their staff go and do a training on of mice and men, unconscious bias training? In this climate, probably not. Number two, if you do not see it as a problem, you're not even going to want to do that training. So it's a catch-22. So yes, there might be one, if you had 100 teachers teaching of my and Men, I'm okay. sure there'll be 10 or maybe even 20. Let's be generous. That would do it properly. But the fact of the matter is most people won't. And that's yeah. why your experience and my experience or the people around us was so, so similar. And there were mm. several others in that tweet as well. So that kind that's of confirms really. what I think. And I think what really struck a chord with me about the incident that you shared was what the young man said so powerfully is mm -hmm. that he sees this as part of his lived reality mm -hmm. and he didn't expect to also see it at school. And I've said this to teachers countless times, mm -hmm. you can't intellectualize that word. Mm -hmm. You can't frame that word in a way where you say, we need to be able to say and interrogate the word in order for young people to understand the history and the context etc mm. this is a traumatic word and it's a word that is part of the lived reality of not just the young people but their families their communities sure. and they see it around them every single day sure. it's not something that can be brought into the classroom for intellectual purposes and, no. and be interrogated and critiqued in that way the classroom is not the space for that and I've also said there is no amount of training that a teacher can have that mm. makes them aware of a young person's lived experience mm. 
the, the justifications for why that book should be in the curriculum are mm. always grounded on this is a great piece of literature mm. it's important to understand the context mm. but none of the conversations are around it's important to support young people to work through the trauma sure. and the violence that emerges as a result of reading this book and for every single young person that I've um, spoken to that has engaged with this book, whether they've been okay with the teacher saying it or not, have said that they've been affected by it. Mm. And what we don't realize as educators is even, whichever side of the argument you're on, even if you're a teacher that says, I, I consult with the students, I do some work to prepare them to engage with it, and then we agree to say the word, mm. there's no amount of training that you can do that can contain the mm -hmm. impact of that word once you've said it mm -hmm. even if you've prepared the young people to understand why you've said it mm -hmm. it still has an impact and I think that's the bit that we're, we're missing in these discussions that we're having mm -hmm. I totally agree with you and I mean somebody did make the point and say look my submission is not about race it's not that's not the core theme and again there are themes in there of um, ableism um, and discrimination against people who mm -hmm. have got challenges whether it's mentally or physically um, there's also looking at gender inequality and again I don't want to knock that I don't want to come and say oh this book because then it's just at the n-word mm -hmm. what people have got to understand and I keep on using it in context of post George Floyd we have seen a watershed moment the protest that we saw Black Lives Matter officially mm -hmm. is the biggest protest in world history mm -hmm. in terms of civil rights I think it was June the 7th or June the 8th where around the world I saw, and when I was watching the news, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. In Japan, they were having Black Lives Matter protests. Australia, Black Lives Matter protests. Mm. Sweden, Black Lives Matter protests. The biggest ever civil rights uh, movement or, 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 or multiple protests around the world. Now, what you've got to understand is people are realizing there's something deeply, deeply wrong. Okay, something very deeply, deeply wrong with the system that we operate in. And people are saying, we've, we've had enough. Now, people can argue what's happened to it. Has it gone underground? What not, what have you? Yes, obviously, there's those themes in there. But as a, a black child or a child of color, if you're presented with books where the characters like crooks who have no agency, they are the underdogs they are humiliated, ritually ridiculed. Yeah. These things have an effect. And, that, and, now, and, and those characteristics that you've said are not fictional for these young people because that's no. exactly how they are positioned in their everyday realities. Exactly. And even the talking of, of looking at lynching. I mean, after George Floyd and I looked at the book prior to this and the guy was basically saying, if you open your mouth, you're going to get lynched. And when we think about George Floyd and the powerful imagery, that was a lynching, mm. you know? These things, as you said, cause trauma. I remember when I first came into school after, in September, after George Floyd happened, and it was different because when I saw my black colleagues, there was a real, I can't explain it, but we were all like, how are you doing? Are you okay? Not like, you know, how are you doing? Are you okay? But it was that, how's everything? And it was really quite powerful for us because we were talking about how do you feel? Because obviously we, we shut down. So school shut down in March. Yeah. we come back in September. So for, for many of us, we didn't see, obviously we might tweet or text or WhatsApp. We haven't physically seen each other. Mm -hmm. And it was powerful because I had conversations with my colleagues and it wasn't only my, my black colleagues with my white and my Asian colleagues that I never thought we could have. Mm -hmm. And this is what I'm talking about in the sense of we have to be careful 
of what we're introducing to our children because you're adding trauma upon trauma. And it's not about being a snowflake or woke. I know people might throw that. Oh, somebody on Twitter, I don't know if you saw, I was having a debate saying this is censorship. You hear the N-word in music, you hear the N-word in films. Why should it be censored? Um, you know, all this type of stuff. But I'm saying is that we need to, as a uh, society, become more aware, have that cultural fluency and understanding and that empathy towards each other and it's not only in terms of race it's also in terms of other minorities and I hate that word minorities but other groups I explained it this way I had a conversation with one of my colleagues my white colleagues and as I said it was a powerful moment for me this year has been powerful because I was able to really speak my mind and they were saying something along the lines of you know what Carl I didn't really realize that you went through all this type of thing and I said it's not that you didn't realize it wasn't on your radar you you just you couldn't see it because it was nothing to do with you. And it's like, no, but it's, it's not about, I'm not a horrible person. I said, it's not even about being a horrible person. I said, I'm going to be really honest with you, right? I am aware that only half of London underground stations have disabled access, all right? So if you're a wheelchair user, some of them have lifts, some of them don't. I am aware of these facts. I know that. So for example, I didn't, until somebody told me this five years ago, I didn't realise this. If you're a wheelchair user, you might not be able to go to Oxford Street or Bond Street. I always get confused which one. But basically, if I wanted to go Oxford Street, let's say Oxford Street, it doesn't have um, the wheelchair access. I have to go to Bond Street and then ride down. Yeah. I know this, but because I am not in that position, it will not touch me as much. And that's human nature. Mm. So because I don't want to come like I'm a paragon of knowing things. It's human nature because it's not my issue in that sense. It, just being really open here. I care. But because it's not hitting me personally, it doesn't hit with that same ring. The reason why you have now come to this conclusion, because you saw it live. You saw what we saw. We've always been saying, look, this is what's happening. This is how we feel. But you saw it and it was undeniable, to use his words. It was absolutely undeniable what it was doing. That was a murder. And that is why people say I can see it now it's not that you didn't believe but it's not something that rings true to you and now we need to take that energy and start looking and saying through that same lens and saying look that wasn't right let's look at everything and let's look at how would this be perceived how would how can we make this better for others I hope I've made sense and I hope yeah yeah no absolutely and I think what one of the things that I'm, I'm thinking about as you're saying that is in a lot of the conversations I have with educators that are really pushing forward this argument about why they should be able to say the word, mm-hmm. their response is, why not? The classroom is a space where things should be critiqued, it should be interrogated, and the response is always, why not? And mm-hmm. my challenge to them is, could you consider for a moment that the reason why you're so resistant mm-hmm. to censoring this word is mm-hmm. because of a sense of entitlement? And the reality is the most resistant educators that we have that want to say this word or feel as though they should be able to say this word are those who are racialized as white. And they have to acknowledge that this is something that the black community is saying, we do not want you to say this word. We do not approve of you saying this word. We do not think you should be saying this word. And there really isn't anything stopping educators from saying, okay, and putting their hands up and saying okay we won't say this word but the fact that there is a need to keep pushing and a need to keep pushing the use of this particular word not the the use of challenging racism in literature and using literature to engage 
in historical contemporary racism that's really helpful. And there's a lot of literature that does that. Mm. But specifically around this word, it seems really, really interesting to see how people respond to being told that they just can't. Let me ask you a question, Dr. Mona, right? Mm. Because the classic argument that's given is the rap music argument, I call it. Mm. I don't know what the official title is, but I call it the rap music argument. You have these individuals who say it to each other all the time. So I don't know if you saw um, the whole thing with Tyson Fury a couple of months back where he was in his, uh, I think it was, it was, I don't know if it's Snapchat or Insta, he was rapping Biggie's lyrics and he said the N-word. And then, you know, this whole thing of cancel Tyson Fury, he's a racist, he's a bigot. He came and he apologised and said, look, I was just singing the song. What would you say? And I think obviously because you're so much more well-versed than me in this particular instance, when someone presents you the rap argument, they say it to each other, we hear it in songs. Mm-hmm. What would you say to that? What would you, how would you position the argument? What do you think of that? My immediate response would be the issue is bigger than it being in the song lyric. I think mm-hmm. that is just a space in which the word is said, just like the book is a space in which the word is said. I think that the conversation we should be having is not about where these words are being said or where they're being written, but mm-hmm. Why do you as an individual feel as though mm. you have the right mm-hmm. to say that word, even if it's plastered all over the walls, even if everybody around you that's a person of colour is using it in conversations, even if it's in the cultural outlets that people are producing, mm. what makes you think you still have the right to be able to do that? And it ultimately comes down to a sense of entitlement. And mm. you have to realise that one of the markers of white privilege is mm. that you have access to any and all spaces. Mm. And as people of color, as black people, we know that there are spaces that we can't enter into. We know that there are words that we can't say. We know that there are things that we cannot engage in. And Mm. these are restrictions that we've known since childhood. Mm. But if somebody is racialized as white, they have been navigating their way through the world without ever having to not do something purely because of the way in which they're racialized there may be other factors that are restrictions but their race isn't a restriction to do that when it comes to the Mm n-word the argument that's often made towards particularly those that are racialized as white is you cannot say this because you are a white person Mm -hmm. and i think that is the thing that causes a huge amount of defensiveness if the argument was presented as we should censor it from rap music entirely. Nobody should say it, whether you're black or white. I don't think there would be as much resistance. But I think the reason why people are inserting themselves into this and saying, well, if it's in rap music, I can say it. Well, if it's in the literature, I can say it, mm-hmm. is they're, they're providing themselves a justification. What I'm going to say next to that, because I've really pondered this, again, as a teacher and an educator and dealing with many different people. I've, I've pondered the rap argument for a very, very long time. So my belief is M-word shouldn't be used by nobody. Mm. All right? And there's a, I can point to a particular incident, all right? Because as young people, you don't know the origins of the word and whatnot. Mm. So I was fortunate enough about seven, eight years ago, I was in Liverpool and I went to the Slavery Museum. So me and my cousin were out there And he said, let's just go into the slavery museum. And honestly, that was one of the most powerful experiences of my life. 
much credit to Liverpool for putting it there because I didn't know the history as well. So when we're talking about transatlantic slavery and whatnot, what have you, I just presumed they took the boat and they just went straight to America. No, that's mm -hmm. not true. They went sometimes and did trade in, in Liverpool and Portsmouth and whatnot, what have you. Mm -hmm. So I learned a whole lot. But one of the things I'll never forget was it did have, if my memory serves me correctly, on one of the floors, so each floor is dedicated to a different thing. Mm -hmm. One of the floors, they spoke about the N-word. Mm -hmm. They actually put it and they were educating people on the n-word and why it was used and basically they needed something to break the spirits of of the slaves or for, of the of the property they were like cattle basically mm. and that word was designed specifically for that purpose to degrade them to dehumanize them and i wasn't aware so when i left and i looked at my cousin i said i can't use this word again now i'm not saying i'm perfect mm. but it really made me think of the power of that word. That word was designed to humiliate, to degrade, to destroy. Some people will argue, and we're looking at, obviously, our communities that we come from and say, look, we've reclaimed that word. That word, we've taken the power and we've taken the sting out of that word. But then what I would say to those people is, as you've just said, if you've reclaimed that word, why cannot people that or white or Asian do it. And I see it with the kids in the playground. They're like, yeah, and this, and that, da, 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 da. And then one of their Asian or white friends will say, yeah, you're my N. And then all of a sudden you see the, what? You can't say that, man. You can't say that. So I said, if you have reclaimed it, you can't half reclaim it. Either you've claimed it or you've not claimed it. You can't give passes to a couple of people. And sometimes, again, I'm just going to be really honest here. Sometimes we've got to not so much look at ourselves, but we've got to say, all right, that's that, but what's going on here? And that's why I'm not going to lie to you. Somebody, um, I was on a podcast by a guy called um, Francis, Let's Do Humans, Big Up Francis. And he, he said something so powerful to me. He goes, if, I, if a rapper made a track about killing a dog, mm -hmm. saying, yeah, when I see that dog, I'm going to stab that dog, da -da 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 -da, the RSPCA would be on them. <laughs> right? you, know, you can't say things. They would not release, the, the record label would not release the track of a man killing a dog. If they said that if a track was made um, about talking about killing, you know, certain different ethnicities, it would never get released. So it goes, why are tracks being released that are talking about killing black people? If you listen to some of these tracks, especially like the newer tracks, and I can't believe I sound like such an old man now. It's like these new, new youngsters. But <laughs> if you listen to it, it's, it's perpetuating violence. N-word this, N-word that. If I catch you slipping on my block, N-word, N-word, N-word. And again, with my new understanding, especially post-George Floyd, I'm like, We've got to up level. Yeah. We've got to raise the consciousness because yeah. we are giving licenses, whether we like it or not. If we are degrading ourselves, mm -hmm. then we're giving license to other people to degrade us as well. Yeah, yeah. And I completely agree with you. There's no justification for ever saying the word. And I, I'm always saying to my friends, we have to get our own house in order. We mm -hmm. need to educate ourselves as a community to recognise historically how that word has been used and the damage that it has caused and the damage that it continues to cause mm. and we have to start changing our own practices to do that I think for me where I start to shift a little bit is when the argument is made that the classroom is a space to do this and my response is always there are things that we need to discuss around the impact of race and we need to that we need to self-educate as people of color and as black people the classroom is not always the space to do that, especially because the vast majority of educators we have are white. Mm -hmm. The way in which the school system is constructed mm -hmm. means that we don't have the time to be able to go into the level of depth required to be able to go into some of these complex issues. Mm 
and we don't have the pastoral and trauma-informed care within schools to deal with what's going to happen as a result of even having these conversations and so I think having a conversation about the n-word is really really important I don't think that conversation should ever happen in school I don't think the school is ever going to be a place where that conversation can happen in a way that is safe Mm. for black children it's radioactive as I said earlier the Mm. the word is actually radioactive and you Mm. really need the same way I wouldn't pick up plutonium with my hand and I'll have to wear the barriers and all that type of stuff and maybe I could handle it but to the layman you can't you can't deal with that it is too deep um, yeah. That word is too deep and it's a lot of trauma. I'm sure there are educators that do it very, very well. Mm. I'm sure that. I'm not saying if you're white, you cannot teach that. Yeah. What I'm saying is it takes real in-depth cultural competency, right? Absolutely. So in my, the book I wrote, I spoke about respect the culture. One of the reasons why I wrote the book, it's all right just to say I wrote a book. Yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> plug it, plug away. <laughs> I didn't want to, you know, Dr. Monitor's like, come on this, and he's plugging books, trying to sell. I, no, you know, go I, for it. So I wrote a book with the action hero teacher. Okay, and the reason why I wrote, and it's all about behavior management. Um, my background's in behavior management and I worked in alternative provision. But one of the reasons why I wrote that book was because I saw that a lot of the problems that was happening, especially when you're dealing with inner city children, was that there was a real um, lack of understanding. There was a real lack of even trying to penetrate uh, the other person's culture. So the whole thing about, and you know, going on to the response. So in your tweet, you were talking about the way the children were treated rather than mm. with, uh, with understanding, they were treated with some form of, of a level of them being aggressive, them being uh, defiant, mm. all these lovely words. And you know, these words have never changed since I've been in school. Aggressive, you're defiant, yeah. you're loud. You know what I mean? And I wrote this obviously before George Floyd, mm. but I, if I was going to rewrite the book and do another edition, I'll probably do two or three extra chapters. You have to penetrate the culture. You cannot influence people if you don't understand where they're coming from. Mm. And the problem that I have seen in schools, and I'm going to be really, 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 really frank, is that you do not, if you perceive your culture as the superior culture, that everybody needs to speak like you or act like you, you, in your mind, you might be thinking, oh, I'm educating them. What you're doing is you're creating a barrier, Mm. right? You are subconsciously telling this young person that you are inferior to me. I'm not even going to try and talk to you. So the classic argument, moving away slightly from the N-word, is like, but you know, we talk received pronunciation here. Don't use slang. Oh, that's awful. Stop using that language. Mm. Language is language. I will start to question the teacher saying they were talking in some form of street slang and we don't mm. speak that here. Why? Okay, so the people like William Shakespeare, are you aware, you know, William Shakespeare was making up words and whatnot, whatever you, language is fluid, language is, mm. and I think Akala had a great talk about this, talking about what determines what, what is in and what is out. Language is a fluid, constantly evolving thing. The thing that we call for received pronunciation now used to be slang back in the day. And he, yeah. he made a great point about that. So by you just said, for example, somebody said, oh, that, that book's wet. He said, no, we don't use wet in this classroom. You know, what you've done is you said to that young person, you know what, yeah. I'm better than you. And then you wonder why that young person does not want to engage with you. Yeah. Because you've completely, and again, it's, sometimes it's not even conscious. Sometimes this is just unconscious. You don't realise you're doing that. But you can't, you've got to try and enter their world. You've got to see things from their point of view and I think unfortunately this going back onto my and men that's why I don't want it on the on the curriculum because there's not enough people that have that as teachers we need to be reflective practitioners we're meant to be thinking 
about how our practice will evolve and change with the classrooms that we deal with. And if you cannot do that, if you come with my view is the best view, my culture is the best culture, you're never going to be able to access the, those young people. And then you get in a situation like I have with Mohammed, where Mohammed will feel like, why am I hated? I am not accept, accepted. I'm othered. Yeah. And we can't do that anymore. If we're going to say that we are anti-racist, we've got to recognise that pure fact there. And I think one of the ways in which it manifests most clearly is how teachers and young people engage with one another. And we've seen this from the incident that both of us narrated where mm -hmm. the young people were doing exactly what they were taught to do. Mm -hmm. We teach young people in the classroom to ask questions, mm -hmm. to think critically, to mm -hmm. respond in ways that are respectful, to challenge. Mm -hmm. And in both incidences, the young people responded exactly in this way to the n-word mm -hmm. being said in my example my niece and her class wrote a letter to the head teacher they didn't challenge the teacher in the middle of the classroom they mm -hmm. respectfully wrote a letter to express their concerns saying we're not happy with this word being said what mm -hmm. can we do as a response to it? what can we do as a result to it and they mm -hmm. were immediately labeled as being threatening and as being disrespectful in your incident the young men in the classroom didn't even feel empowered enough to even speak in the classroom. Mm. It was something that was said later on. And mm. in that moment, again, the label of being threatened, of being threatening. Mm -hmm. So what is it about young black children in the education system that makes it so difficult for them to be able to challenge the things that are impacting on them and that are causing them trauma mm -hmm. without them having that label? associated with them and we see it for boys and girls it's, it's very different but the, the label is still there that's an incredible question that's a really really good question and it's such a poignant question i'm sure you're aware of this but um listeners you should read a book by a guy called dr tony sewell and it's called black masculinities in schooling and brilliant i run a book brilliant book and he eloquently breaks it all down and ironically what's so ironic for me was when i was writing my book I went to a colleague and a colleague and I said, look, I'm thinking about writing this book. And he said, you know what, dude, they're not going to respect you because you're a black male. Mm -hmm. I always say this story. But some people start to, to, to cringe, but it's the truth. I'm just telling you what the person said to me. And then I went on a mission and I was like, you know what, I want to find black male teachers that have wrote education books. Funnily enough, Dr. Tony Sewell is the only guy in the UK that's done that. So mm -hmm. I was in utter shock when I was like, who do I look at as role models? One person. So now, as far as I know, I'm only the second black educator, male, UK educator that's wrote a book. That's why I've got such high uh, regard for Dr. Tony Sewell, because I just feel like, well, I'm number two. I, I would love to be number, uh, you know, he's number one. He's like Maradona, you know, mm. may he still rest in peace. But what Dr. Tu uh, Sewell talks about was basically he actually did uh, research on this in the early, late 90s to 2000s. And he was looking at the reasons why. Why do we have the, the problems that we have? And again, it's systemic. It's the imagery. It's, it, it's, there's so many layers. Mm -hmm. So some of the things he was talking about was um, society, the way that black children are viewed or uh, black youth are viewed. They spoke about deeply entrenched institutional racism, going all the way back to colonial times. If you look at the language mm -hmm. about uh, around, you know, the Victorian era with the, you know, the British Empire, looking at things like that white man's burden where in colonial Britain, they felt that it was their job to go and take over lots and lots of countries and, you know, give them religion and give them a way of life and make them more like Britain to civilize them. And unfortunately, although the uh, obtuse language around that of mm. empire has gone, 
in our culture is still very, very deeply embedded. Dr. Sewell looked at, again, he looked at everything. It's a fantastic book. He looked at size and the perceived threat of these young males and all these type of things. But yeah. I think the, the honest question is, is, it goes back to what you do. Mm. There's a lot of unconscious biases that many teachers and I'm, I want to be absolutely honest, they walk into a classroom and they have, and they don't realise it. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a speech by Michael Holding after George Floyd, the cricketer, and he was talking about, they asked him, what is your opinions on, on race and whatnot? And he, he cited a study. I haven't looked at it myself, but the story was absolutely fascinating. He said um, in a university in America, I don't know which one, he said basically they got, I think, 100 teachers mm-hmm. and they showed them a video where there was two black children. So it was all white children and two black children. And what they said was they put these goggle things on them and they said, we want you to watch for any behavior issues. All right. And we want you to log what you think the behavior issues are. Okay. Now, what the teachers did not know, this was not about behavior issues. It was about bias. Mm -hmm. And what they found or what Michael Holding explained, I really need to look at this study for myself. But what he explained was there was no behavior issues. They got professors to look at there was none whatsoever. But after that video was shown, I think something like 90, 90% or 95% of the teachers said these two black children are the problems and whatnot, mm. whatever you want. So when the researchers revealed to them and said this was not about behavior, this was talking about um, bias, yeah. they were flabbergasted. And they agreed to say, you know what, although I'm ashamed of it, let's let it go out in the world. And yeah. that is the problem. That is the problem right there. It's the expectation before the child even goes into the classroom. It's they've already got the labels. It's almost like I say to people, when our kids go into the classroom, I use weird analogies. I said, what you don't realize is life is like a computer game. I'm I'm old school, like Sega Mm. Mega Drive. (laughs) Some of your guys won't know that. Oh no, PlayStation 1. No, no, no. I'm talking about the original. And what always was interesting about those computer games was that you had um, settings of easy, normal, hard, difficult mania you know what I mean and I said what you don't realize is with our kids they're coming into situations playing the game on hard (laughs) you know what I'm saying so when you play the computer game on hard you have left lives so on easy you've got like unlimited lives you can die you you know what I mean you can show but on hard it's like two lives and then it's game over for you you know what I'm saying you've got less opportunities so you're like I don't know if it's Mario you can pick up all these you know power-ups and that can help you get to other parts of the level our kids mm-hmm. don't have that. They might have one power up and it's like half a power up. Yeah. Right? And you kind of see where I'm going with this analogy. So our yeah. kids are walking into situations where they, they're playing the game on hard. And the sad thing is, the sad thing about that is some of them are not even aware that they're playing the game on hard. Mm. So what do we say? You could say yes. So the argument is, yeah, well, let them be better players. Of course, that's what we try and teach them to be better players. But mm. we've got to look at the structure of the game itself and say, look, this game is too hard. Let's change the setting. The way that the game is being designed is not fair. Yeah. And I think when we talk about trauma-informed practice, and I'm always encouraging schools to think about trauma-informed practice through the, the lens of race being a part of that and understanding racial trauma, is that there's a latent stress that young people carry, young black children, that whether they realize it or not, carries from their external experiences out in society into the classroom and into the classroom outside into their external environments. And one of the things that we don't understand or we don't recognize enough is that many of our young people are acutely aware Mm. of what setting they're Mm. entering, entering into. My PhD was looking at the experiences of Somali boys within the education system and very, and a lot of that was around narratives of racialization, Mm. racialized as being black and understanding the game 
that mm. needed to be played. And they talked about it as a game that needed mm. to be played. They knew the rules of the game. They knew what they could do. They knew what they couldn't do. They knew what would create a reaction. And they, they knew that, that if they did ever speak out on something that was happening against them, they had to be prepared for the consequences because there would always be disproportionate consequences for them. And we can see that time and time again, where yes. the, the responses to somebody challenging, you can say it in the most respectful way. The response to that, the consequence to that will always be disproportionate. Okay. Just to give you an example, Carl, we see that as adults, when the Black Lives Matter movement happened and the George Floyd incident happened, there mm. were a number of black professionals, adults on social media saying, I need to challenge my organization because they've been silent on this issue. I need to speak to my head teacher because mm. they've been silent on this issue. How do I do it in a way where I manage my tone mm. so I don't come across aggressive, so I don't come across angry? These mm. are adults who are asking about how they can monitor and censor themselves in mm. order to not get the response that they all are they are already anticipating and this is built on over time and it's an age-old problem i'm sure you're familiar with w.e dubois yeah uh, double consciousness the double consciousness or the double-minded negro mm. and it's interesting because you said at the top of this conversation you were saying that um let's talk about childhood let's talk about the black experience and what w.e dubois why i think he was an absolute genius was he, he, he so eloquently described the experience of many black people. Yeah. What his thesis was or what, his, what he observed was that for a black person, a black person almost has to split themselves into two. Mm. You've got the, what we call the front facing black person. Mm. And then you've got the real black, not the real black person, but you've got a, a consciousness which is very much aware of the surroundings that they're in and this, the Western society they're in. Yeah. But then there's almost like the other part of themselves that they are afraid to show. Mm. Uh, where it's more the more of the authentic part not to say yeah. you go to work in your line you know what I don't know if you've been watching um, small acts mm. it, it was it's a small scene but it was done so beautifully where there was a scene in uh, small acts by Sir Steve McQueen looking at yeah. you know black experience in the 80s where you had this guy who was a car mechanic um, and he brought his girlfriend into the uh, in the garage and they were fooling around listening to music and dancing and his English boss came in and all of a sudden, bam, his accent changed. He went from speaking, you know, I and I and proper patois to, yeah. you right, boss, how are you doing? Oh, sorry, mate. <laughs> I, found that, I found that scene so hilarious. But I thought yeah. on a deeper level, that's what we do every day. Yeah. We have to code switch. We have to navigate. And almost, if you think of it again, I'm not, uh, I'm not a, a psychologist, but mm. the stress of switching literally on a penny yeah. is very difficult. And our young people pick up on that. They pick mm. on that. Even me, when I enter certain spaces, because I don't want to be perceived as frightening. Look, it's funny because even to this day, this literally happens to me almost every single day. If it's mm. like nighttime or it's slightly darker and I'm walking behind people who are, you know, Caucasian, mm. I can see the fear. I can see them speeding up in pace or whatnot. And sometimes what I do is I cross the road so that I don't scare them or I mm. don't, you know, and I know it's going to sound weird. Maybe for some of your viewers, you, you this might sound weird, but I do it so that I don't want to scare them. And also, I don't want to be accused of anything. One of my biggest fears, and this happened to me, I'll tell you, you know, I wasn't going to reveal this, but I'll tell you a story. When I was 14 years of age, and I'm from East London, mm. I remember I was walking home from my friend's house, and all of a sudden, it was quite late, it was about 10 o'clock, it was like summer holidays or whatnot. A police car come and the way that the police car came it was like something out of a movie you know when they come and they, mm. they stop right in front of you 
three um, cops come out. Obviously, I'm a 14 year old boy. I'm, a, you know what I mean. All of a yeah. sudden, where, where are you coming from? Where, 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 where? I'm literally like mortified and they're saying, oh, there's been an incident where there's like a, you know, a white woman, blah, blah, blah. And I said, I swear I haven't done anything wrong, Mr. Officer. Mm -hmm. I'm terrified. Six foot, I'm not the tallest guy in the world, but you know, these guys are six foot five, blah, blah, blah. And then after, I think they, they could see, hear my fear in my voice. And I said, look, you can go, honestly, my, my house is there. I started to stammer, my mum is there, blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? They took me to the house, mm -hmm. they confirmed it and they left me. But I said, the, the terror of that, and the terror of being accused of anything, because they were saying that basically there's a robbery and a white girl was robbed or whatnot. Mm. I'm a big, I won't say my age, but that's decades ago, a couple of yeah. decades ago. That terror still lives with me to this day, where yeah. if I, for example, it's late at night and I see, uh, just say a Caucasian lady or a Caucasian man or whatnot, I want to be away so that if that happens, I don't get accused. Yeah, It's a yeah. silly thing. And some of your viewers might say, why do you do that? Why are you crossing the road? Or why are you avoiding? Because I said, mm. because I don't want that happening to me again, where I'm yeah. getting three officers literally ready to throw me on the floor. And I'm a young boy, you know what I mean? And yeah. the sad thing is, this happens every day. Every day. In, and, sometimes in, and sometimes in ways that we don't even realise. And, and one of the things that people need to understand about trauma mm. is that it destroys vulnerability. Mm. The, the, when you experience trauma, you create mechanisms that don't allow yourself to be vulnerable. You're mm. always in the defensive. You're always taking the necessary precautions you, you need to keep yourself safe. Sometimes mm. might, those things might seem paranoid. Sometimes mm. they might seem crazy to anybody that's outside mm. of your experience. But you mm. do it because you're, you've got in your consciousness the trauma that you've experienced. And you're doing everything in your power to make sure that you stay as safe as you possibly can and young people learn that from a very very young age when my niece recounted to me her experience of doing the of mice and men text yeah. i shared my own experience with her that was almost identical i was in a classroom exact same situation a female a white female teacher decided to say the n-word with no disclosure whatsoever there was no discussion about it she went straight into the chapter and said it as if it was a normal part of her lexicon it wasn't even a stutter it flowed out and I'm, uh, I was a very docile student. So I was very quiet. I wasn't, I was a shy student. I never talked back to the teachers, etc. And in that moment, I felt like I needed to say something. And I said to the teacher, why did you say that word? Mm. You, sh you shouldn't be able to say that word. And I said it vocally in the class. And remember, I'm not a student that ever mm -hmm. speaks back in the class. And my teacher immediately said to me, Mona, you're making me feel uncomfortable you need to get back into your seat, otherwise I'm going to call what would have then been patrol, but at that time it was just calling the deputy head teacher to go to the office. And mm. for me, the fear of the repercussions mm. made me feel like, I, and this is where I described it to my niece, I said to her, I felt like I was trapped inside my own body. And yeah. W.E.B. Dubois talks about this idea of, as mm. Black people, we learn to step outside of ourselves Mm -hmm. to see ourselves through the world's eyes and then go back inwardly in ourselves and censor ourselves as we need to in order to survive in that space this is what we've been conditioned to do because of racism and, and my another, niece said she felt exactly the same way and, and she said she felt suffocated and that's interesting because it touches on for me doing youth work I've looked at a lot of research about this again so, so some people will say you know, let's have these difficult conversations. So I'll say some people, you know, and I've had conversations with people say, oh, these young black boys are violent. Why are they so violent? And look at their music and look at that. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, the reason why they're violent towards each other was because one of the reasons why they're violent towards each other is because they've dehumanized each other to such an extent mm -hmm. that they don't see each other as another human being. And another yeah. thing is they know there's probably not going to be much repercussions. 
obviously if the police catch you um whatnot whatever you get repercussions but if you look at the the, the sentences like so for example they were talking at uh damiola taylor mm. and the kids that stabbed him got 10 years and I swear they were released in five years. Yeah. So in fact, the stress of that, because I, I, I followed Damiola Taylor Foundation, the mother died for the stress. So can you imagine someone's murdered your son, then they've been released and you're seeing them, you're living in the same place. The person that's yeah. murdered your son. The reason, one of the reasons why, and Akala talks about this as well in terms of black on black violence is because we've been dehumanized to such an extent. So if you've got a system and you've got people that are being violent towards you, mm-hmm. the only outlet is to stab each other and to kill each other because you mm-hmm. know that there's not going to be as much blowback. If somebody goes and was killing Caucasian people or, or, or Chinese people or Jewish people, mm-hmm. there will be a huge blowback and repercussion. If yeah. somebody was making tracks about the same individuals saying, I want to kill this one and using you know, the, the particular racial epithets mm-hmm. that they use, the, the track would not even see the light of yeah. day. The record yeah. label would absolutely refuse to show that. So what is happening, it's not making an excuse, as you said earlier, we've got to clean house, but what is happening is that we as a, a, a people are being dehumanized, yeah. humiliated, othered yeah. to such an extent, because a lot of people are like, why is everybody protesting with Black Lives Matter? I said, it's like a can of Coke, or it's like a bottle of Coke, and what's happened is being violently shaken, yeah. and you're trying to put a lid on it, and people are like saying it's enough now. And that's why it blew up the way it did, because people have this experience every day. And the violence might not be with a knife. The violence might be just being othered. There's so many times I've went for job interviews. And to this day, people will say to me, you know what, you, you, you speak so eloquent. Mm, the, the, the classic, you speak so well. <laughs> I have to speak. I mean, I did a, tra- I did a training um, and it was interesting. I did a training and one of the feedbacks was, but I take it as a compliment. It's like, it's so good to see a black male who speaks mm. so well. And I'm just like, what has my colour got to do with the training? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Why am I always being presented with my colour? Or why are you surprised when I speak this way? I was yeah. educated here. So it's that constant knowledge as W.E. Dubois, that double consciousness. Yeah. And he talked about self-monitoring as well. Yeah. And I love what you said about tone or whatnot, because if mm-hmm. somebody who's non-Black, you know, stands up for themselves, he's assertive. He's, you know, he's a go-getter. He knows what he wants and we like that. I've heard that in the office. You know what? He gave me that idea and he said it with force. We like that. He's a go-getter. If I do the same thing, oh, he's a bit aggressive, isn't he? Mm. It might be a bit of an issue. Did you like the way? I've, I've actually... <laughs> what, uh, anyway, I've got so many stories. But it's funny yeah. because I remember talking really quickly. I remember when I was a TA in a school, many, many, a decade ago when I first started teaching, there were a group of um, boys who were really like, they were tearing up the whole hallway. They were locking plants and whatnot, what have you. Wasn't my proudest moment. And I didn't know as much as I know now, but I was like, hey, you boys, go in the corridor, blah, blah, blah. Because uh, another thing, there was another teacher there who yeah. was trying to handle the situation, but she couldn't. She was like, boys, please stop. And they're running and they're literally tearing everything down. So yeah. I come out of the class and I'm like, oi, John, blah, blah, blah. You go to your class, you go there, you go there. Now, the deputy head teacher was walking past, and I noticed her, observed her. She walked, she looked, and then she walked away. Now, at the end of the day, I didn't think nothing of the incident. Yeah. That same teacher, the female teacher, came to me and said, Carl, can I talk to you really quickly in the room? And I said, what, what's wrong? Did I do? Because no, thank you so much for helping me. It's just like the deputy head teacher approached me and said, oh, don't you find he was, he was really being really aggressive? Did, mm. I, feel, I kind of felt he undermined you. And I said, what? And she goes, you never undermine me, you help me. And she said, what the head deputy head teacher said, if you feel he undermined you or he's a problem, let me know mm. and I will deal with him. Just You just say the wow. word. 
And I said, what did you say? He goes, no, Carl is a really useful member. He never undermined me or my authority or whatnot. Wow. So she said to me, just keep an eye because I don't think she, she appreciated what you did. And I just filmed her thinking, wow. So I was very conscious. How I, you know, That's unbelievable. I Actually, yeah. it is believable. It's, it's still, <laughs> it still disturbs me. And I, I think because I've heard so many examples of that. And that's in the intersection of race and gender. Mm-hmm. The fact that as a black man, she's actually putting you in your place by making you aware of that. Mm. By, by saying this is the warning that was given to me to say, if he does anything that you mm. think is out of bounds, you think is out of bounds, your perception Mm-hmm. Let me know and there'll be consequences for it. The whole issue of violence, because I know people think about, oh, lynching. In this country, we don't lynch people. Mm-hmm. So, but there's, as you said, it's trauma. It's, it's the constant, the hypervigilance. So you don't yeah. say, oh, you're jumpy or you're agitated. It's because you're always watching. Absolutely. And the sad thing is, when I look at my, the children in the classroom, that's what you've got to understand. If you're, if you're an educator that really stands for EDI, equality, diversity, and inclusion. You've got to understand what you might think is a safe space. It's not a safe space. Yes, 100%. So when you're dropping N-words and whatnot, you've turned that safe space into a a battleground. Mm. Because now that person has to navigate, as you said, they have to navigate, should I say something or should I not say something? They've got to navigate their own emotions. How do I feel about this? Should I be angry or should I not be angry? But hold on, the teacher said it. So that means that's okay. But no, but I feel angry. So when you know these things happen and you're not creating that safe space and then you the kids kicks off and you wonder why they kick off and then you the, the thing you do is you tamp down on them yeah that's wrong and yeah as i said for me oh yes it's an issue of color but when i look at edi i'm looking at everything yeah you've got to make it safe for everybody people yeah. that are you know got physical challenges people that have got mental challenges color gender sexuality you can't just do one and then just leave the other one and say the other one's being too sensitive. Mm. Then you're not doing it properly. That is and I, think, I think that right there, that right there is the thing that's missing from the conversations that we're having at the moment, because I think everybody is so focused and I think deliberately so to distract away from the real conversation that needs to happen. People mm. are so focused on the literature. They're mm. talking about it as this book should be in, this book should be not. Regardless mm. of what the, the literature that's being engaged with, the bigger issue is what are the power dynamics at play? What is happening in that classroom? And whether a teacher says I had this discussion with students or not beforehand, Mm -hmm. there isn't an equal power balance in that class. Whether you're in a position of authority, Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter how you frame the conversation. These children do not know how they're going to be affected by you saying that word. So ultimately, Mm -hmm. the decision to say it or not still Mm -hmm. lies with you. Yeah. In what other space of work? Do we ever give somebody in a position of power that much authority over whether or not they cause somebody trauma? Mm. It's literally handing over a ticket to teachers to say, you have a choice now. You either traumatize these children. Mm-hmm. And that's ultimately is we're not exaggerating it when we say this. It's mm-hmm. you either say the word and realize the trauma that you're causing or you choose not to say the word. I'm, and I'm not saying not saying the word doesn't mean that that teacher isn't engaging in problematic practices within that classroom because there's a lot of other things that we need to be exploring but if Mm. we're talking about this within the context of just how we engage with the curriculum decisions need to be made that are outside of the teacher's control i don't think this should be left to just individual teachers to ultimately decide it's not fair it's not fair again on the same twitter thread that we were we well you started and i just added to it there were teachers that were saying look I am extremely uncomfortable. And they, mm. they, they spoke, there was an, a, a guy that was an NQT who said he challenged his head of department saying, look, 
we should not be saying that word at all. But yeah. the, the head of department was like, no, we, we, we should do it. And he goes, he defied his um, head of department because the head of department was like, you need to say that word. We need to be robust. We need to kind of mm. show, you know, not we, we, we don't fear the word or whatever, whatnot. But he said, I choose not to say it because obviously of the demographic that I've got in the classroom. Mm. And that's why things like looking at the curriculum, decolonizing the curriculum, although now that's become a political football mm. with um, the equalities minister of what she said mm. and saying that schools that teach critical race theory are mm. basically breaking the law. Um, and let's just show another perspective. But then the, the answer is, what is the other perspective to mm. discrimination? What is the other perspective? For me, when I look at that, it's not fair on individual teachers to kind of uh, look at that. We need to look at it from a curriculum level and say, all right, what do we want to achieve? Part of what we look at with Ofsted, part of the whole teaching standards, to, is the, the whole being, to educate the whole being. That's what the government always talks about. Mm. It's not just to get grades, it's to educate the whole being that they can navigate in the real world. And yeah. if we are not educating to the whole person, if we are not ca uh, catering to the particular needs, and again, as a teacher, that is your, your designated duty to mm. make sure that you are helping the children access the work or access the subject. Yeah. If we're not doing that, then we're failing to do our jobs. And mm. yes, you can argue about literature and censorship and whatnot, mm. but go and look at that thread. People that say, oh, I've taught it a million times. It's not the, only our two stories. There were stories mm. coming out of the woodwork. Mm. And it's, it's generational. Absolutely. If you're a mockingbird, I have the same issue. It's generational. It, it causes so much hurt. And what makes yeah. hurts me is the fact that, you know, I went to the school, the school in the 80s mm. and it's the same problem now. Yeah. And you've seen this big event with George Floyd. You've mm. seen what it means to people. Mm. You know it's hurting people. You've seen, and as you said, you're getting... What I saw, which was shocking, was you had like black celebrity. Everybody was talking about, look, mm. this is how I feel on a daily basis. Mm. I don't think you're treated the same. Lewis Hamilton the other day was talking about it yeah. when he was going to races. He was getting stared at. He yeah. Names. You know that this is a deep, hot button yeah. topic. I and te teachers are not supported to deal with it. I think we're, we're in a really problematic time at the moment where teachers and schools are being pushed to engage with Black Lives Matters, but teachers are not given the support, sure, the yeah. tools, the training that they need to meaningfully engage with it. They're being told they need to decolonize the curriculum, but they're not being supported to understand what that actually means. What mm. does it actually mean to decolonize the curriculum? What does it mean to engage in anti-racism work? What does it mean to use the classroom as a space to interrogate systemic racism? If you're not equipped to do that, if you're not supported to do that, if you don't have the skills to do that, how can you engage with it? We don't have appropriate CPD for teachers no. to be able to do this work. The entire initial teacher training education program needs a reform. Mm -hmm. It's not fit for purpose at all. In any form of looking at equality, diversity and inclusion, it really needs to be, to be looked at. But when we're looking at race in particular, we're relying on teachers to make judgments on an individual level. And there are some teachers on an individual level who have done the work, who know the historical context, who know the, the history of the language, who know the, the context of um, the, the students, where they're coming from and how to engage with the classroom in a meaningful way. But not every teacher does, and it shouldn't be a lottery. Educating shouldn't be a, shouldn't be a lottery. So either we ensure that all of our teachers have the appropriate training and support to feel confident and competent to be able to engage with this work, or we don't include it in the curriculum until they are ready. And you know what, Dr. Mona, you know what, what is interesting about what you are saying? Education needs a reform full stop. People 100%. don't really see, we have left the industrial age. I say this, I'm, I'm, I feel like a bit of a preacher now, uh, preacher Carl about this. <laughs> we, 
we have left the industrial 2020. If people look back and say, when did the industrial age end? If I was a story and I'll say 2020, it killed it off. Yeah. We are in a perfect storm now of technology, AI, all these things coming, climate change, polarization of politics. It's a mm. perfect storm. And we really need desperately to reform our education system because I don't know if it was Bill Gates or somebody, somebody basically, one of these big wigs were basically saying that the use of technology is the new literacy. Mm. And if our kids can't access it, they're going to be left behind. Yeah. We're seeing jobs are getting lost left, right, and center. Marks and Spencer's, 7,000 mm. jobs gone. Sainsbury's had record profits, 100 million pounds of ref- record profits gone. Mm. The reason why in terms of this, how does it come into our, this conversation? Because as we know, statistically speaking, people that are in the, uh, in the lower class or working classes disproportionately are people from the black and Asian and other minority ethnic communities. And these are the people who are going to suffer the most from all these changes. Mm. So if we do not change the way that we're educating our young people, there's going to be, there's already talk about a lost generation. Mm. And what goes deeper, we're not even looking at at race, we're looking at class. So you could be a white working class boy or girl, and you will be part of this massive tsunami. Either, as somebody said, you're either going to be on top of the wave or you're going to be under the wave. This is what we are kind of seeing. And this is why all the initiatives and all educators need to really start pushing for more equality, diversity and inclusion this should not even be an argument at this stage. Yeah. As, as you've eloquently said, this has been from the 80s or whenever, mm. you know, I can say personally from the 80s to now, the conversation needs to move on. I'm not saying that everybody should be a superhero and everybody should be what not, but there needs to be a long, hard look at what are we trying to do? How are we helping those individuals? Because yeah. this is our life and death stakes. This group of people are very, very vulnerable. Yeah. And it's not even their fault. I'm not talking about that, but because of the systemic mm. imbalances and systemic disadvantages that the system has afforded, they're going to get left behind. So yeah. we need to look at the whole thing from top to bottom, open yeah. the hood, look at the engine and say, we need to take yeah. that part out and put that part in. But yeah. the issue is, do they have heart to do it? Do we have the heart and the will to do that? That's the Absolutely. Issue. And we have, to, we have to get the balance right. I think there's a lot of haste at the moment mm. and not enough speed. I think people are hasty. They're, they're seeing Black Lives Matters. They're seeing the consequences of COVID being highlighted. They're seeing that there's a, there's a generation of young people who are going to be impacted by the things that we've seen over the last year. Um, and I think there's a, there's a level of speed at which people want to engage with this work, but they're not ready to engage with this work. So they're trying to implement things without having the preparation and the readiness to actually engage with it. And so I've really been speaking to as many organizational leaders as possible to educators and saying, this is work that hasn't just happened overnight. This mm-hmm. work has been going on for a very, very long time and needs to continue going on. But you need to get the balance right within your organization between making sure that there's a long-term commitment to education, sure. to reform, to challenging systems, but also recognizing that there are things that you can make immediate changes to. 100%. And I think we're, we're not pushing hard enough for curriculum change. We're not pushing hard enough for initial teacher training. And there yeah. aren't enough people advocating for these things to be looked at in terms of the systemic change that we can meaningfully do. Yes, you can be working in your own individual school, but yeah. we all have the power and influence to be able to speak to our MPs, to be yes. able to speak to our universities that are leading the teacher education programs, to be yeah. able to speak to the multi-academy trusts that we're a part of and say, 
there is a systemic issue here and we need to be able to deal with things at the root cause rather than seeing teachers that are overworked that are tired that have multiple responsibilities particularly as a result of covid they're, they're dealing with children whose mental health has to be a priority more than anything else and on top of that we're saying to them oh and here are a few other things that you need to do without giving them any kind of tools any kind of support to do so so I really think as a community, whether we are educators or sitting outside of the sphere of education, we all have a responsibility to be able to, to be pushing this forward and seeing what we can do in order to enforce systemic change. Just to add on that, these type of conversations can sometimes be deemed as, I'm even in, a, in this conversation, I'm almost half aware of how people perceive, if that mm-hmm. kind of makes sense. I'm, it's not so much I'm censoring, but I'm trying to, because some people might take the wrong things from this conversation and say, oh, uh, again, you guys are, co-, you know what I mean? Complaining mm-hmm. again. It's not about that. The word education comes from the Latin word educare, mm-hmm. which basically means to bring forth like a well, drawing out from the child. Mm-hmm. People think education is putting things into the child. Mm-hmm. It's not. The traditional, if you look at, I think it was this Socratean model that we look at education from was mm-hmm. to bring out the natural talents and abilities of the people that we're teaching to see it more like a garden rather than a factory line, which education unfortunately has become now. The issue here is deeper than, should we say the N word or not say the N word? Mm -hmm. What the issue is, is what are you bringing out of that child? What are are you doing? If you are an educator and you believe in the job, you're not just doing it for a paycheck, this should be one of the top priorities. If you believe in the power of education and what it can do, you've got to be equally committed to equality, diversity, and inclusion. Mm. Black Lives Matter, or any lives matter, should not be a slogan. This has to be an action. It's not a noun, it's a verb. We have to do it. It's a doing word. So putting a Martin Luther King poster on and Mm. saying, I've done my, my, my bit is wrong. Because if you truly believe in education, you've got to understand what these things do to affect the young people. We are the first, the millennial generation, if you study generations, is the mm. first generation which are earning less than their parents. It's the first generation that can't afford homes. It's the first generation that there's so many negative firsts. Mm. We are on the front line. And as I said, it's not even about just merely black. It's about able-bodied gender. I will stand on that hill and I'll die on that hill. I'll fight mm. for your right because I believe in bringing out the best. We're not all built the same. What I'm basically trying to say in a long-winded ways, this is not a tick box exercise. Absolutely. This has to be now inbuilt and embedded into the curriculum, embedded into the ethos of the school. Not just mm-hmm. something you see on the wall, we respect everybody. How are you showing it? that commitment? Because I'm telling you the truth that schools and teachers that do that, you will be remembered. You will, you will have an impact way beyond your career. When I think of myself and the teachers that impacted me, it wasn't based on their knowledge of physics or based on their knowledge of science or Shakespeare. It was based mm-hmm. on how they treated me. 100%. They treated me like a human being. They treated me. They looked at my potential. They said, Carl, you're good at speaking and you're good at writing. You can do this. And I carry that with me every day. And mm-hmm. if you are a teacher that is committed to those beliefs and those tenets, you will have that same impact as well. Carl, thank you so much. I can't even tell you how much I've, I've loved this conversation. It, it's been, it made me feel so full. I think that's probably the, the best way to describe it is I've been looking forward to speaking with you about this for for the last few days, especially through the ongoing conversations that have been happening. So I'm really grateful 
that you spared the time to come and speak to me about it. Action Hero Teacher, your book is incredible. Your tweets are fantastic. Please let us know anything that you've got coming up that people can look out for and how they can connect with you. But we'll share your social media when we share the link as well. But I just wanted to say thank you so much. Thank you very much for the time. As I said, keep up the great work. This was incredible. Like yourself, I learned so much from you. I learned so much from everything that you put out. So uh, this was equally a pleasure for me. I I hope we can do this again. I hope this is part one. Like this is an Avengers. This is Marvel Cinematic Universe. 100%. We'll be back with Avengers. (laughs) (laughs) So next time, well, there's something coming up, guys. So keep 2021, by the grace of God, keep a lookout. There's something that I want to do. But um, hopefully there'll be a part two to this. Amazing. We're, We're looking forward to it. Thank you so much, Carl. When this conversation first started on Twitter, the focus was very much on language. People were debating the term, who could use it, who couldn't use it, and what precursors needed to be in place in the classroom before the term could be engaged with, if it were to be engaged with at all. And these conversations are important. But what Carl and I wanted to highlight was that this is about so much more than language. This is about decisions that are made through curriculum and through pedagogy that actively harm black children. This is about young people entering into spaces that should be safe and finding those spaces to be violent and traumatic. This is about the power dynamics in the classroom that need to be accounted for at all times. This is about recognizing the additional responsibilities that are placed on educators to teach and take care of the whole of the child. This is about challenging ourselves to think differently in the decisions that we choose to make in the classroom and who we choose to make those decisions for. This is about recognizing that black children in the school system are not allowed to be children and that their bodies are objectified and their emotions are being weaponized. For a black child to be considered to be disrespectful, aggressive, threatening, for simply resisting the things that are causing them harm, these are the questions that we need to be asking. These are the conversations that we need to be having. This is about so much more than language. You've been listening to Becoming an Anti-Racist, the podcast.